The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. Being an attorney gives me an advantage um, in leadership for sure. I'm more discerning. Um, I, I, I don't miss a beat. I'm asking all the right questions. I'm getting under every stone, you know, turning every corner. And I'm always thinking about what's the risk. I'm always assessing the risk. I'm always thinking about who else do we need to engage in this conversation to make sure we have all the facts. Who are we missing? What are we missing? Hello, and welcome to The Hearing, a legal podcast where we have insightful conversations with interesting people connected to the law. I'm your host, Jennifer Thibodeau, and today I sit down with Michelle Meyership. Michelle is the Chief Executive Officer of Dress for Success Worldwide, a global not-for-profit organization operating in nearly 25 countries. We talk about the organization's mission to help women achieve economic independence and in Michelle's words, to dress the woman from the inside out. As she told me, every woman's story is remarkable and the client story she shares today are indeed incredible. I also got to chat with Michelle about her career journey leading to the CEO position. And this was a real thrill for me because I have admired Michelle from afar for many years. She's been in private practice, the public sector, she's been a chief diversity officer, and she held this really barrier-breaking position in Major League Baseball here in the States. I loved this conversation because she is honest, engaging, and easy to talk to. She also shares some really important and insightful career advice about professional development. And I know that you will enjoy listening to this conversation as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. And now, Michelle Meyer Ship. The Hearing. Hi, Michelle, and welcome to The Hearing. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Well, let me say on a personal note, I am so happy that you're here because I too went to Seton Hall Law. So I have seen you speak and be honored at the school and at various industry events over the years. So it's really just a thrill to have this one-on-one time with you. Thank you. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. I'm excited to be here. And thank you for inviting me. Well, let's get right to it because there's so much I'd like to chat with you about Let's start with Dress for Success Worldwide. You are the Chief Executive Officer of the organization. I will add here that we also have a worldwide audience of listeners at the podcast. So tell us about the organization and its mission. Oh, I'm so excited to do that. So I'll start kind of top line and say this. Dress for Success is all about helping women achieve economic independence. Um, We were founded 26 years ago. Um, We are indeed worldwide. We actually have over 140 affiliates in over 23 countries. Um, And the whole focus is to really help women get on their feet and get job ready, um, help them position themselves for gainful employment, making um, a salary at a livable wage, and getting them to sustain those jobs. So it's all about, for example, helping a woman who's entering the job market with preparing for the interview. So preparing her resume, uh, creating a LinkedIn profile, mock interviews, mentorship, coaching, et cetera. And then once she gets the job, 
the women who are in our in our programs actually get to stay on for a one-to-one peer mentoring, group professional development, career workshops, et cetera. Um, we also provide women with professional attire for those job interviews and for those first few weeks of work as they're getting on their feet. Now, I'll say this. I, I want to make sure I point this out. Upon founding, it was only about the clothing. And it's been over the last, you know, decade or so that we've really evolved to become this full workforce development entity for women in need. Um, And it's really fascinating because now I like to say we're dressing her from the inside out. Um, It's really neat. The other thing that's really interesting about the growth of the organization over the last 26 years is that we started, we were actually founded in the basement of a church Um, in New York City in the States. And it was really to help women coming out of incarceration, you know, get some clothing, get set up for that job interview. And since then, we now have grown into an organization that helps any woman coming from any situation. She could be entering the workforce anew, like out of high school or out of college. She can be entering the workforce after recovering from a traumatic life situation, um, or she could be returning to the workforce after taking a sabbatical, after taking parental leave, or she could be someone who is later in her career that wants to pivot and do something different. She can come to us and we can help her, you know, reimagine her resume, reimagine her skill sets. So she is anybody in need from a, a wide array of diverse backgrounds and we're there to help her. I think that's so fascinating because personally, I did not know until the last few years that Dress for Success went beyond the suit, so to speak. You said dressing a woman from the inside out. I had always thought about it as professional attire and then to learn that you can have service clients really meet them wherever they're at is really remarkable and what an amazing mission. I'm curious, is there a particular success story or two from an affiliate or a client that you could share with us to kind of, I guess, paint an even more specific picture of the importance of the work? Yeah. So I'll I'll tell you two quick ones, but I want to, I want to preface it by saying this. Every woman's story is remarkable. Um, Every woman who walks through our door is coming to us because she has a challenge and she's able to overcome that challenge with our support. So all of their stories are remarkable. But I would say two that stick out with me um, are are, are these. So one, um, we have a woman who escaped from many years in human trafficking. Um, And she was human trafficked. As a result of being human trafficked, she also found herself fall prey to addiction. And when she came, when she finally, you know, got from up under that horrible situation, not only did she get the help she needed with regard to her addiction, but she came to us for support and really thinking about how she would land that first job and helping her assess, you know, what skills did she have? Um, and, and she will tell you to this day that not only did we help her get a job, um, but we actually set her up with the confidence that she needed to go and apply to go on and pursue higher education. Um, She now has a master's degree um, in psychology, and she actually is a counselor for other women and men who are survivors of human trafficking. And in addition to, I mean, it's just getting goosebumps as I think about this. In addition to, you know, getting that job, she literally is economically independent, 
She is supporting her family and she is supporting her community in the work that she does. So it's really the story of, for us, when you help a woman, you help her family and you help her community. And she speaks so, such truth to that. So, so she comes to mind for me and I just adore her. Um, the other story is of a woman who um, here in the States had a, um, her house was lost and destroyed in a hurricane. And she had an at-home business. So when her home was destroyed, she lost everything. I mean, her business, her clothing, her personal belongings, et cetera. And she came to us for help. So we were able to provide her with clothing. We were, we were able to help her create a resume such that she could describe the skills, you know, that she developed over the years running an at-home business. And we helped her land her next job um, while she re rebuilt her home and her family and all of that. And now she's gainfully employed. She's economically independent. She has a sound roof over her head. She's supporting her family. And she is actually in the process of preparing to relaunch her home business um, so she can help other women. So and again, those just two examples of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories of courage, resilience, grit, and all the things that make these women so wonderful. It's absolutely amazing the work that you do and you started out talking about economic independence and those stories really show it and you're right how that really just transfers all across their families their communities and their lives it is amazing so how does dress for success do the work that it does you mentioned that you have uh, all the affiliates i think you said in, in 23 countries are you uh just on a grassroots level do you rely on volunteers there's there's so much that you do how do you do it yeah i love that question it's a great question and, it, and it's a complex question so i'll say this first of all a lot of people don't know this but so I, I'm the CEO of Dress for Success Worldwide, which is kind of the governing entity of all of the affiliates, but each affiliate is its own independent 501c3. Um, and for an affiliate to be stood up, usually what happens is we get an interested community member who approaches Worldwide and says, hey, we want to start an affiliate in X city. And then we have to give that person kind of our guidelines for affiliate, for the formation of an affiliate, and they have to actually prepare and present a business plan to show us how they intend to stand themselves up and be self-sustaining. And once the affiliate is approved to launch, it usually ends up being a situation where it, it's basically a small like mom and pop shop organization run by just a few people. Many of the affiliates are literally staffed with like one to four people. And it is the volunteers who are the ones that come in and are trained. It's kind of a train the trainer approach, right? Trained on how to, you know, how to counsel a woman, how to coach a woman, how to help a woman with the professional styling and all of that. And it's funny, once we get volunteers, they never stop coming. Um, they love to come. And some of some volunteers love to come and they just want to work inventory. They're like, we just want to go handle, we don't want to really deal with anybody. We just want to help you with the logistics and the management of your business operations. And then we have other volunteers. They want to coach, they want to counsel, they want to mentor. Um, and there's a lot of individual volunteerism. We also get the bulk of our volunteers through corporate giving. So a lot of corporations partner with us and they they use the Dress for Success footprint as a great kind of link into their volunteerism effort. So they may say, hey, you know, company X employees 
we are working with five affiliates across this market. You know, here are the opportunities to plug in and then those employees plug in. So it's been, it's been really amazing. And I always tell this to our volunteers, we could not do what we do without them because there's no way that an affiliate that's run by, you know, a small, small team, sometimes of just one person can get all of this done. So that's pretty much how we operate. And it's been amazing to watch kind of the way we've, we've grown and taken off. It really is amazing to, to think that you're in so many cities and so many countries. And I was uh, smiling a bit to myself when you mentioned about, you know, the, the small spaces, because my local chapter is in a small basement and I've donated my professional attire there. And then they sent emails saying, we have too much. Everyone is, is so generous in this area. We can't even take any more. And it's always the same volunteers that I see when I do go there. So how can the people listening support Dress for Success or get involved if they're interested in doing so? There's tons of ways. I would say, first of all, think of it this way. We need the help of everyone with respect to time, talent, and treasure, right? So if you're interested in volunteering, I would encourage you to check for your local affiliate and you can find the affiliate nearest you by just looking at our website, which is dressforsuccess.org. And there's a link for affiliates. You can find the affiliate nearest you and reach out to that affiliate or even check their social media website pages to see what's going on. Most of our affiliates, not all, but most, literally have all of their activities regularly updated via Twitter, now X, Facebook, LinkedIn, et cetera, um, Instagram. And you can actually go there and they will say, hey, call for volunteers, volunteers needed, you know, volunteer training, things like that. And if for some reason the particular affiliate you've located doesn't have an active um, internet you know, site um, or page, you can actually just call them. They're always looking for help. And I would say that meeting every affiliate where it's at, it's what really matters. To your point, Jen, you know, some of them don't need clothing. Some of them have too much clothing and have nowhere to put it. Some of them really need coaches. They need trainers. They need resume writers. They need mock interviewers. Um, and some of them need funding. Um, so if you're able to donate any dollar, all by the way, I forgot to mention this, all of our services are no fee. They are free for the women that we serve. So it is really that treasure that folks give us, that corporations give us, the monetary treasure that helps us uh, deploy the programming that we deploy. Michelle, it's also really evident that you enjoy the work and that you are passionate about it. So I'd like to talk about your role as the chief executive officer of the worldwide organization. I know enough to know that I'm sure no two days are the same for you, but can you tell us a little bit about your your day-to-day -day and, and what you're doing on the ground? Yeah, so so day-to-day -day is it is a lot. Um, there are many moving pieces. I like to describe it as navigating and engaging multiple stakeholder groups at the same time. Um, and actually, it's funny. I was just talking to my husband about this yesterday. You know, I've got my, obviously the women we serve, I've got our affiliates that I'm tending to and worldwide spends time helping the affiliates build their capacity so that they can serve our women. We've got our corporate partners um, who I have to engage with. We have the volunteers that we have to engage with. And then we have the community and various stakeholders in the community that want to partner with us. Um, and then we have our board members. So it's there, there are constantly stakeholder groups that want to engage me for a variety of reasons. So I am always trying to make sure that I'm putting the time and attention into what each of those stakeholder needs. 
I also spend a lot of time visiting uh, and meeting with the affiliates on the ground. Actually, tomorrow I'll be spending the day with one of our affiliates. And when I go to an affiliate, I'm actually spending time with the affiliate leadership, usually the affiliate you know, staff and the board. And then I actually spend time with the clients because um, I really like to engage with them, hear their stories, you know, coach, counsel, mentor them, et cetera. And then often I also get pulled into meetings, lunches, dinners with corporate partners. So it really is hitting all of those angles. And then back at the ranch that I called worldwide, um, we are literally working at a strategic level to optimize all of our operational efforts for worldwide and for the affiliates. So I'm actually running a business. And a lot of people forget that part. Um, it's not just the stakeholder engagement. It's not just visiting the affiliates, but I am actually I am actually running a business. So we have a strategic plan. We have several um, strategic initiatives underway to support worldwide and the affiliates. So I'm also driving all of that forward as well at the same time. So you mentioned on one end of the spectrum, how much you enjoy meeting with the clients. And then of course, on the other end that you really are running a business. So I'm wondering, what are the parts that you really enjoy the most? And then what are perhaps the most challenging parts of your position? I would say the parts that I, the part that I love the most clearly is the women. Um, I just love being with our women. I love being with the affiliates because that's where the magic happens. And you like, you actually see it right in front of your eyes. It is, it is heartwarming beyond measure. Um, I'd say the hardest part for me, this is my first go around in nonprofit and the hardest part for me is the retention of talent. Um, you know, nonprofit traditionally pay is the pay is not anything what it is in corporate America or in professional services. So a lot of times you get people coming in and out of the door. Um, and unfortunately, because in nonprofit resources are so limited, you don't have the money to invest in professional development that I've seen invested in corporate America. You know, having run HR um, and talent initiatives and many multinational corporations, I mean, we used to have money to do amazing things to grow and develop our talent. And now I'm in a space where we can't do that. We don't have the money to do that. So I'm constantly trying to find creative ways to get volunteers and corporate donors to do volunteer development, coaching, and mentorship for us because we need it too, you know, not just the women we serve. So that part is a little frustrating for me because I'm just not used to having that limitation. So I'm constantly trying to figure out how to push through that. So Michelle, you mentioned this is your first go around in nonprofit and you've hinted about some of your prior roles. So let's pivot to talk about your path to becoming the CEO of Dress for Success Worldwide. You had started your career as an employment lawyer, both in private practice and the public sector. And then it seems like your first transition was when you left practice to move into the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging space. So can you tell us a little bit about your motivation for what I'll call, I believe, your first career pivot? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So I actually, as you stated, I practiced law for about 12 years and I really didn't enjoy it. I didn't enjoy the litigation aspect of it. I didn't enjoy the fight of it. Um, I, I, you know, some people love it. I just didn't. I, I really found myself very frustrated, you know, going through a whole discovery process, getting ready for a trial and getting to the courthouse steps 
and somebody finally offered the ap apology that the other party wanted. And all that time, all that money, all that effort was down the drain. Um, and it just really frustrated me. What I did like was the work that I did as an employment lawyer that was more proactive, you know, going into our corporate clients and helping them with proactive strategies and things of that nature. And that's what opened my eyes to thinking about something beyond the practice of law. And it was actually with the support of the last law firm that I was at, that I was able to pivot and leave and go to work for the state of New Jersey um, for, the for the government. And I stepped into a job that was an EEO job um, for the state. And from there, it literally just took off. It was like every move after that was a setup for the next move. Um, and when I left private practice and worked for EEO, that opened me up to lessons in being a leader. I managed a team. I managed a budget. Um, I had to have. I had to build a strategy. I had to do all these things I'd never done before. And when there was a gubernatorial transition, um, as an appointee, I had to move on. And I landed a job in house um, at Merrill Lynch as an employment attorney. Again, no litigation, but it was all supporting the business with aspects of talent you know, EEO policies and practices, training on bias and things of that nature. And it all led me down this path around talent development, DEI awareness, et cetera. And it's, it really has been an amazing ride. That really is fascinating because first of all, you started saying that you practiced for 12 years and you didn't like it. I practiced for 11 years, realized I didn't like it. So that definitely resonates. But there are parts of being a lawyer that are enjoyable. I I agree with that. Yes. I'm wondering if there were any specific experiences or skill sets as a former litigator and lawyer that you used when you transitioned and then went into this different role. Oh, yeah. So I will tell you, like being an attorney gives me an advantage um, in leadership for sure. I'm more discerning. Um, I, I, I don't miss a beat. I'm asking all the right questions. I'm getting under every stone, you know, turning every corner. And I'm always thinking about what's the risk. I'm always assessing the risk. I'm always thinking about who else do we need to engage in this conversation to make sure we have all the facts. Who are we missing? What are we missing? Um, I had a very interesting situation come up just yesterday. It was a really simple thing. Um, and someone on my team said, okay, Michelle, I want to do this. This is the next step. I've checked with outside counsel and outside counsel said X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, really? Well, did outside counsel also you know, review this document, this document? What did that contract say? And the person kind of looked at me like, and I said, we need all those answers. Well, we got the answer it actually suggested that we do the exact opposite thing that the person on my team was trying to do. And I said, you see, this is why taking that extra step, getting under that rock, reviewing those documents, asking all the questions really matters. So it, it literally, the legal skills come in handy every, every day. And I drive my folks insane with a red pen um, because I am <laughs> meticulous about all of the written work that we do every email, every document, I'm like the red pen monster. <laughs> I'm constantly making sure that we have really high standards on the quality of the work that we're delivering. And that all comes from practicing law. 
I was going to say, Michelle, you certainly sound like a lawyer. So those old habits <laughs> definitely die hard. But like you said, I mean, you can end up with an opposite recommendation. So that's right. Fantastic. You can rely on those skills still. I want to talk a little bit about your time as a chief diversity officer as well, because as I've mentioned, I've heard you speak before, and I hope I'm remembering correctly when you, you talked about um, your passion for the work, but at the same time, you use this analogy, I believe, of pushing a boulder uphill, and then you felt like the boulder was rolling down on you, and you're, you're nodding. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you. I'm glad I remembered correctly. Yeah, that sounds about right. So I like <laughs> to tell folks who, who are new to the work of DEI that unless they're in an organization that like 360% gets it, um, there will come a point at which you feel like you're beating your head against the wall. Um, so, I mean, I've worked for some great organizations and they've had a great commitment to DEI, but the movement of DEI and the progression around DEI really is about the people who are making the decisions about talent. Um, so as a DEI officer, you know, you can create best practices. You can update and amend policies to make them more inclusive. You can recommend that people cast a wider net when they're recruiting. You can suggest that people go outside of their comfort zones when they're building their teams. But it's up to the actual human beings who are the managers and leaders who are making the decisions to actually employ those tactics. And we're human beings. So no matter where you go, no matter how great your organization is, you are always going to find at least one person, if not a group of people who are either resistors or they just don't care or they say, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't do the work. And you literally, after a while, you get to a space where you just don't find that you're making progress. I've also seen that, and I've talked to many DEI leaders about this, a lot of organizations will do the work around advancing DEI while it's easy. But when it gets hard and hard decisions have to be made, it's like, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. We may not want to go there. And again, you kind of feel like, okay, I've gotten you to this point. Now it's time to make some really hard decisions. It's time to really, you know, pivot on something. And there's this resistance to doing it. And you kind of feel like, okay, so what, what did I just spend, you know, three years doing if you're not going to continue to push the ball forward. And I really have to say, I mean, I give all the kudos in the world to anybody that's navigating this work current day um, because of the socio-political environment we live in and the rollback on all of the DEI issues and you know um, policies, practices, et cetera. It's a really, I mean, it is a really, really, really tough job um, to be a DEI leader. It was then, and it most certainly is now. The Hearing. You're an attorney with a passion to perform, a drive to be absolutely on your game, with superior resources, serious preparation, and total confidence. Be your best with Thomson Reuters Practical Law. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover to the heart of US politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. 
So you mentioned a few times that you've dealt with a lot of resistance in your role in DE&I. I'm wondering if you have any advice for how to deal with people who are obstructionists, whether in that context or in other professional contexts. So that's a hard one to answer because I think it really depends. I mean, the answer to how you deal with that person depends on the organization and it depends on the person and kind of the scenario. Um, so, I mean, I think of one particular instance that stands out to me where I had an organization that really got it. I had an organization that was really committed. I had an organization that was really aligned around, you know, here are the things that we need to do. But that organization also had several lines of business that had individual presidents. And so each president of each business had to do this work. Um, my job was to, you know, share with them the policies and the practices. My job was to recommend to them how their business can employ these practices. But I had one president who was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. And I don't need to do that. And it doesn't, you know, my business, whatever, whatever. And he refused to do it. And I tried a couple of times to convince him to get engaged and he wouldn't. So in this instance, with this particular leader, I decided, you know what? Fine, don't do it. I'm going to go take my time and energy and focus on the other leaders who want to do it. And we are going to showcase those leaders. And what was really interesting, there's like so much psychology here. It was fascinating. As he saw the other leaders getting recognition from the CEO for doing great work, guess who came knocking on my door ready to do the work? And guess who became one of the biggest advocates for the work? So it was really interesting. It was, there's a lot of psychology behind <laughs> sure. that that we don't have time to get into, but that's one tactic. Another tactic that I have found that has worked is sometimes you have to, with a resistant leader, kind of speak the language of DEI in a way that resonates with them. So for a male leader who does not want to support, you know, a, a woman's initiative, it's like, hey, do you have a daughter? Do you want your daughter to have, you know, blah, 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 or for you know, issues around other dimensions of diversity. Hey, well, what if your son was gay? Or what if your sister was a person with a disability? Or what if you know, your daughter married a person of another race and you had a biracial grandchild? You know, it's really helping people put themselves in the shoes of those you're trying to help that generally gets their eyes to open. And if they can specifically relate because they do have a family member or friend who's living in another space, then they wake up. Um, I'll say this last thing on this topic. I remember I heard one leader speak at one time. He was a CEO of a big, big company. And he spoke, white male, he spoke about when he realized the trials and tribulations of black people in America. And he talked about going to an airport and traveling with one of his black colleagues. And he talked about noticing for the first time ever the treatment he got versus the treatment his black colleague got. He's like, you know, why did everybody assume that I was in first class and they assumed that he wasn't? Why did people assume that we were not traveling together when we were? Why was I offered, you know, the special beverage and he wasn't? And all these different things. And he said that that was the first time in his life that he actually realized how just walking a day in the life of someone who's different can be so much more trying. And from that day, he literally said he became the staunchest advocate of DEI ever, but he had to walk in his colleague's shoes alongside of him for a day to see it. 
Yeah, quite literally. Those stories are so powerful. And you mentioned psychology. It seems like there's so much empathy that you breed when you start sharing those stories and can really open people's eyes to that lived experience. So you mentioned leaving this behind because it, it had been difficult. So I want to transition to talk about then your pivot to Major League Baseball. And let me make sure I get this right because you had quite a tall order, a lot of responsibilities on your plate when you went to MLB. You were the highest ranking woman there. You were the chief people and culture officer responsible for human resources, operations, facilities, and DEI. You supported the Central League office, 30 major league clubs, and 120 minor league clubs. And if I'm looking at this correctly, you joined during the pandemic in 2020. So if I were a law school exam question, I would simply say discuss, but we are not. So <laughs> let's let's talk about it. Did I, did I cover everything? Was that everything that yeah. you were doing? Okay. So what led you then to, to the MLB? You know, what attracted you to, to this position? How different? Yeah. So a growth, it was a growth opportunity for me. So I am always of the mindset that you have to be a continuous learner and you have to be looking for continuous growth. So after a decade in DEI, where quite frankly, I was burning out and just exhausted from the fight of it all, um, I wanted to do something different that would allow me to grow. And what the position at Major League Baseball gave me was the opportunity to actually run HR, not just diversity. And it gave me the opportunity to also run operations. So all of the operations of that business fell under my purview. So it was a growth opportunity. Not only did I have a DEI budget and team, but I had an HR budget and team. I had an operations budget and team. It was a massive role. Um, and I also had, again, the day-to-day -day engagement with 30 major league team owners and over 100 minor league owners. Um, so it was a tall, tall order during the pandemic where there was no playbook um, for anything related to navigating people and safety and health and wellness and all of that. Um, and so think, think about this, operations, HR and DEI, all three of those things were inextricably linked to navigating the pandemic. And I oversaw all of that. I would like to say in any HR leader or DEI leader you talk to will say this, we definitely had the hardest jobs outside of the CEO at any organization during the pandemic because we really had to figure out how do we help people manage their lives? How do we keep them safe while we get the work done? Um, and we were also navigating the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. Um, so it was a really, really, really tall order. It was massive. Massive. And just looking at it on, on paper and then hearing you talk about it, it's it's unbelievable. I want to unpack a little bit about your comment about being a continuous learner and this being a growth opportunity. So you said, I think you you know were managing human resources and operations for the first time. How do you prepare yourself for something like, like those big roles that you're doing for the first time? Yeah. So you study and read up. Um, and you also find yourself a few good mentors um, who can help you navigate the space. So I actually got my Society of Human Resources Management certification. Um, and I also took some coursework on leading operations. And I also got connected very strategically to people who had similar roles at other leagues and teams. 
Um, and literally before I even started the job, they were coaching me on things I need to look out for, strategies I needed to think about, ways I needed to navigate. So it was those, it was those mentors and that learning that set me up um, to really move forward. And then one of the things I've learned over the years, and I do think this too comes from being an attorney, is you always want to go out there and kind of do a listening tour. You want to hear and talk to all of the key stakeholders to understand you know, where they are, what's working, what's not, what's not working, and what they need from you. So when I took the job, the first thing I did was I met with all the heads of all the departments, um, the different leaders of all the teams to say, okay, we're, we're navigating a pandemic. We're navigating the aftermath of George Floyd. I'm your HR and DEI operations leader. What do you need from me? What's working? What's not? And how can I help you? And after you do that with all the key stakeholders, what actually happens, and it's fascinating, it's happened in every single job I've had, including this one, your strategic plan is written from those conversations. Because what starts to happen is you hear themes um, around what people need, what's working, what's not, what's missing. And it literally lays out for you the kind of your roadmap on how you want to spend, at least for the short term, your first one to three years. So that's how I navigated that. That's really powerful advice. And you eventually left the MLB. And as I said, I've seen you speak. You've been really frank about your decision to leave because it, it was so much. Can I ask you to share a little bit about that with our listeners? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I was exhausted. Um, I actually, that... Like any, I had a lot of my friends who were HR leaders like pivot around this time. I think I, I would say I was part of the the great reevaluation or the great resignation that you heard that people had during that tenure. My third son had gone off to college. Um, we had come through, or at least we thought through the pandemic. Um, and I looked up one morning and I'm like, God damn, like that was exhausting. I mean, we got some really good stuff done, but I am burned out. And I really want to do something that's a little bit more philanthropic in nature. I really want to do something that allows me to directly impact the lives of other human beings at a much more kind of community-based level. But I wasn't sure what it was. I just knew that my work here was done. Like I was totally tapped out. Um, and I, my plan was to take a sabbatical and to just take some time off. And I didn't know what I was going to do, but I just needed to just take care of me. Um, so I stepped down from my position. I had no job. I had no plan for a job. I literally was planning on taking a full year off. Um, and I met with a coach during that time just to talk about, okay, before I step into another role, what are some of the things I need to be thinking about in my work? What's, what should I be looking for? How soon should I be moving, et cetera, et cetera. And to make a really long story short, she told me all the things you would imagine she would tell me. But one of the things she said to me that no one had ever said to me in my entire career, she said, so Michelle, I'm going to ask you to think about, you know, when you look for a job, what are the key qualities you're looking for? And I told her, I'm looking at the job description. I'm looking at the geography. I'm looking at the money and blah, blah, blah. And she goes, well, are you also thinking about work that brings you joy? And I was like, huh? She goes, and I mean work that makes you really happy, really happy, like joy, like pure joy. And I was like, 
wow, now that's a concept. Like nobody's ever said that to me before. I mean, I thought I'm just supposed to get a job at what I'm good at, right? And that caused me to really pivot my thought process on next steps. And I made a commitment to myself that I wasn't going to take a job because it was a great company or because it was a great title or because the money was amazing. I was only going to take a job wherein the core mission of that organization was something that was going to bring me great joy and fulfillment. And And it was funny. I was really tested on this, Jen, because I had some calls for some opportunities that were very seductive. Um, and I remember going, all right, I'm being seduced here. <laughs> that title, that company, mm. that sounds, but wait a minute. Will that actual role exhaust me or bring me joy? That was the, that was the test. That was the ultimate test. Not do I have the skills, da, 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 da. And I actually turned down two really big amazing jobs. Like one of them that was so big, it would have just been amazingly insane, but I knew it would not bring me joy. Um, and shortly around that time, when I was going through that process, I got a call from a recruiter about dress for success. And when I read about the mission of the organization and when I read about the impact of the organization, and when I thought about my career in really focusing on supporting others with their growth and development, you know, driving inclusiveness and DEI and all of that, I was like, oh my goodness, like my talents, my skill sets, the joy factor, like this is, this is all it. And I zeroed in and was zero focused on getting this job. And I did it. That is so amazing. First, let me say I really, really admire your your candor and your courage in talking about your burnout because I don't think a lot of people do that. And for anyone listening, knowing that you have been a leader for, for decades and can be so frank about that, that really is so influential and impactful. So thank you. And then it seems like really we've come full circle because you started talking about how really in so many words that your position brings you joy. And here we are talking about how you got there. And it also makes me think that maybe it's similar to earlier in your career when I'm sure you were an excellent lawyer, but you didn't love it after 12 years, right? And and left. And then you realize you don't have to keep doing something just because you're good at it. That's right. And that's a tough lesson to learn. So uh, I have just two more questions really for you. I've been jotting down some notes as we've been chatting. And one thing that really jumps out at me is it seems like people, as obvious as this might be, people have really been a theme throughout your entire career. First as an employment lawyer, now serving clients in Dress for Success, but in the diversity, equity, inclusion space as the chief people officer at Major League Baseball. Was that intentional? for you throughout your career? So I don't think it was like specifically intentional, but I will tell you this. I know the theme is people and everybody in my family will tell you, like, I've never met a stranger. Um, and I just love people. I'll talk to anybody. I'll befriend anybody. I mean, my sons used to laugh at me when they were younger. They're like, please, mom, do not go in the store. You will, you will stop talking to strangers and you will never come out. Um, I do. I just love people. I love helping and supporting people. And that definitely is a theme. And that was actually one of the, the things that came out of my coaching experience. 
um, that I had never really picked up on before, but my coach did some assessments with me. And one of the key characteristics that came out of those assessments was interestingly caring, that I was very caring and empathetic of other human beings. And what the coach said to me was, she goes, this is probably why you were so quick to become exhausted and burned out by the issues that you had to navigate as an employment lawyer, as an HR leader, like some of those, like the, the, I mean, laying people off and, you know, all the things that I was responsible for overseeing or leading, like really hit me in a really hard place personally, right? Like just seeing some of the things. Um, and she's like, you care deeply, you care hard, and that is a strength, but it can also be a weakness. She's like, so you have to think about finding joy in a way where you're actually helping somebody transform their life in a positive way, not in a way that is going to make you feel sad or exhausted on the inside. So it was really an epiphany, like to pull that all together and, and really come to that realization. That's amazing. And it does make a lot of sense. The caring, the empathy, the love of people, the service, it really does reek of Michelle Meyership. So that is fantastic. <laughs> My last question for you, and whether it's personally or professionally, I'm wondering, what are you the most excited about right now? So I'm most excited about my boys. Um, I have three amazing sons and they are, let's see, 21, 23 next week and almost 26. And I'm watching them like soar. Um, two are out of college. One is about to be a college senior and watching them take off, watching them step into their leadership lens and seeing that and seeing the characteristics that they have picked up from their parents um, come out like really crystal clear is just like, it makes my eyes twinkle. In fact, last night, my husband and I sat for like two hours and we were talking about one of our sons and just the observations we're watching as he evolves. It's really, really exciting. And I'm also excited um, from a professional standpoint to see where we go and where we're headed as an organization dressed for success. I mean, again, we just crossed 25 years um, we've got some really cool initiatives underway to amplify and refresh our brand, um, to amplify our technology, to amplify our operational efforts. And I'm really excited to see how that allows us to set the affiliates up to do even better as they move forward in supporting the women that we serve. That certainly is so much to be excited about. I particularly love your proud mama mentality and being <laughs> excited about your boys. I should say... I I've appeared before your husband. He's a federal judge here in New Jersey multiple times when I have some private practice. So it is no surprise to me to hear that your three sons are stars and, and shooting stars at that. And really thank congratulations you. on everything with Dress for Success, Michelle. Thank you for being here. Thank you. And thanks for having me. This was a lot of fun. I appreciate it. The Hearing. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Before you go, please rate the podcast and leave us a review. It really helps other like-minded listeners find us. And don't forget to subscribe to be notified when our latest episodes drop. We'd also love to hear your thoughts, feedback, and ideas for future guests. So please drop us a line at thehearing at tr.com. That's thehearing at tr.com. Until next time. The Hearing.
a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash the hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.